Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 444th show of ROI. Our guest today is Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University, who is going to talk to us about the soft, delicate subject of, were the Vikings? brutal and bloodthirsty or is this just a misunderstanding the history buffs for today's show are jay swords and rick sweet the theme song is titled kayla's theme which was written and performed by mark zap zaptel our producer and engineer is as always mr general manager dave baker um to begin with we'd like to welcome cat back to the show how are you doing cat I'm great. It's good to hear you guys again. Oh, we're thrilled to have you back sincerely. Uh, we call this first segment of the show Farouk Narn, and it is our goal to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, uh, can you start us off with some of the basic information why the Vikings have such a gruesome reputation? Well, part of the reason is who wrote the records of so-called Viking incursions. Because a lot of the evidence that we have about so-called Vikings was written from the people they raided. And it's important to remember that the first appearance of Vikings in England is the raid on Lindisfarne in 793 CE. And it was a monastery. And they sacked the monastery. And they looted the monastery. And then the monks complained and wrote nasty things about the Vikings. And... Every time a group of Viking raiders raided a monastery or raided some place that had literate people who could write records, they said, these are horrible, bloodthirsty, savage people who come, they slaughter, they kill us. Some of that is absolutely true. Some of it is exaggerated. And through the ages, the records and stories of so-called Vikings were largely perpetuated by the groups that were writing about them or who may have suffered at their hands or who simply just saw them as heathens because they weren't Christian. But the thing about Vikings that's important to remember is that Viking itself is a part-time job, not an ethnic identity. And the term vikinga means bay raider. So it was basically what young Scandinavians, or not entirely Scandinavians, what young people would do in the summers. They'd get in their boats and they'd go trading. They'd go raiding. They would do a certain amount of pillage and burn. There was a certain amount of rape, a certain amount of looting. They did take slaves. They sold young monks on to castration houses in Venice to sell them on to the Byzantine Empire, according to my colleague, Mary Valente. And they made a, a lot of money, but they also went everywhere. There are Viking raiders who explore the Volga. There are Viking raiders in the Mediterranean. There are Vikings in Constantinople. And as recent DNA evidence has proven, not all Vikings were Scandinavian, and not all Scandinavians were Vikings. There's a great deal of new evidence that points out how inaccurate this view of white, blonde, strapping, horned helmets, raiders who are fierce, savage, and bloodthirsty, how wrong that image actually is. Okay, so let's, when you were talking about the stereotype of the Viking that is pretty much 
I guess the best way to describe it in the Marvel comic book universe is Thor. What other, what we would possibly consider maybe nationalities of the day, because I know that that's changed five million times, but what other <laughs> ethnic groups would be under the, were discovered to be part of the Viking um, movement that you would be surprised that they were there? Well, because there were Scandinavian sailors and raiders and traders who went all over, they would pick people up. They would pick people up wherever they went. And sometimes they would enslave them. Sometimes they would kill them. Sometimes <laughs> they would marry them. Sometimes they would take them home and they would marry somebody else. Sometimes they might join them. So you could have people in quote-unquote Viking bands who might be of Mediterranean descent, who might have, you know, North Africa. You could have Viking raiders of a diverse ethnic mix because of all of the movement of these people, all of the travel, all of the trade. There is physical archaeological evidence of Islamic coins in Denmark, in burials in Denmark, and Scandinavian burials in Sweden and in Norway. Um, there have been exhibits of Viking Age treasures and goods that represent material goods from all over, not only Europe, but North Africa and parts of near Asia. Okay, so um, let's talk about then the uh, mobility of the Vikings. Of course, you said they did in t extensive travel. Um, were they also bringing with them trades or what other aspects of their northern life were they bringing with them to the Mediterranean and to other regions that were surprised to find them? Well, a lot of it would be things like gold work, um, metal work, leather work, uh, a lot of the intricate lace work that you see on Celtic motifs. You see some of it in um, Viking artwork, too. In fact, the quote-unquote Vikings settled every city in Ireland. And so there's an awful lot of material evidence from those settlements, like the um, the settlement that was discovered in Dublin in the 1980s at Wood Quay and Fishamble Street, where you have uh, some Viking goods that are carved goods, leather work, ivory work, gold work, that then makes its way down to other places in Europe and vice versa. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI and KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Kat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University, and we're talking about the topic were the Vikings brutal and bloodthirsty, 
or was this just a misunderstanding? Maybe they had a softer side. Our history buffs today show are Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. And Jay, since you are our resident Scandinavian historian, as far as ROI is concerned, why don't you start us off? Thanks, John. Um, Pat, as a uh, as a person of the modern uh, media, it seems to me we need to get down to brass tacks here and and talk about some gore. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if it bleeds, it leads. Isn't that the quote? Yeah. Did, did the Vikings yeah. do brass tacks too, Cat? I'm just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not so much brass tax, but. <laughs> um, so give us a sense of what the literature of the time uh, had to say. What were they talking about uh, in terms of what the Vikings were, were doing and, and uh, the brutality that they, uh, that they were passing out, whether it was uh, completely accurate or not? Well, you have a lot of literary sources that survive thanks to Iceland. Old Norse Icelandic culture produced hundreds of literary texts and poetic texts that survive to this day. And because Icelandic is so close to Old Norse Icelandic, people can read them. And a lot of that literature is that. It's literature. And they talk about blood feuds and raids and there's a brilliant scene in Niall's saga when Brother who kills the Irish king Brian Baru is eviscerated. They slice open his abdomen, tie his entrails to a tree, walk him around the tree until he's tied to it with his own intestines and then they shoot him full of arrows and kill him. There are accounts of the Blood Eagle, which of course have been it's in the media recently because that's one of the centerpieces of two different episodes of the History Channel's Vikings. And in fact, the History Channel series, Vikings, has kind of elevated this image of the Vikings, both as farmers and settlers, but then bloodthirsty, ruthless warriors who go into battle rages or just kill because it's fun. The first two seasons were pretty good. After that, it goes a bit off the rails. Apparently, the um, ratings weren't that great, so <laughs> so they had to. They, so they increased the pints of blood and into gallons, and so things things like the Blood Eagle, because it's in literature, ends up being part of the modern popular assumption of Viking brutality. Were there brutal Vikings? Sure, of course there were. Were there ruthless raiders? Uh huh. Yes, absolutely. Was that everybody? No. No more than your average Englishman would necessarily have been brutal and violent. No more would your average um, Gaul have been brutal and violent. It entirely depends. You have your exceptions. You have your outliers. But you also have literary motifs that end up in the popular modern conscious as fact. And by and large, they were mostly fiction. Rick. I look at the history of other people during about the 7th century to the 10th century, and in their comportment and diplomacy with other cultures and people, I don't see any difference in level of brutality. Am I deluding myself? No, not at all. In fact, part of the, part of the recent research into the Viking Age history um, that examines the cultural diversity, that examines the 
the expansive reach of a lot of these raiders has proven that, honestly, Vikings were no more brutal or no less brutal than other cultures or people specifically. It all depends on who wrote the stories and whose perspective you get. And because the dominant narrative was that of the Catholics, the Christian monks who were being attacked, of course they had nasty things to say about the Vikings. But, you know, you have laws. Iceland has a very sophisticated legal system or system of laws that were written down. You have some brutal kings in Norway. You have some brutal kings in Denmark. But you have brutal kings everywhere in the Middle Ages. It depends on when and who we're talking about. I mean, the Viking Age technically goes from about the 8th century up through the 12th century, more or less. But there are there are so-called Vikings, on part of the Varangian Guard in Constantinople in 1204 when it's sacked by Christian Normans. So it all depends on the perspective and who's writing down the story. Now, Part of the reason Vikings get that bad rap is because, yeah, there is a system of blood feud. Yes, people could fly off the handle and let fly an axe. Absolutely. There's a fantastic scene in Neal's saga where Scarpaven sees his enemy on a frozen river, slides on his knees down the frozen river, takes his axe, swings it around his head, whacks off his opponent's head, and his teeth go skittering down the ice. It's brilliant. It's amazing, and it's possible, but it's also literature. And sometimes it's, people have a hard time determining the difference between literature and reality. I mean, the sagas are, are, are brilliantly mined for actual evidence. Jesse Bayak has used the sagas to find archaeological sites in Iceland. But that doesn't mean everything that happened in the sagas is true. So you, are you telling me that the song of Roland, not every bit of it is 100% on? Are you kidding? Yeah, the sharks on the Roland, they totally use swords that hack through their helmet. And the horse. Twice men and a half and the horse to boot. Wow. Exactly. Uh, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, that kind of brutality in the Song of Roland is ridiculous. Uh, well, along that line, Jay and I and Rick have taught many a times that, of course, uh, we were taught this from our mentors at West Illinois, that, yes, historians told the truth but they also had this terrible habit they like to eat so they would romanticize as you're saying to kind of maybe instead of a army of six thousand six hundred thousand who's going to know the difference is there a renowned european historian slash guy who wants to eat who is talking i mean i know you're talking about the uh, catholic monks but is there any individual who's the most renowned for dictating or documenting, supposedly documenting, what the Vikings were doing and making a good profit off of it. Well, you have chronicles like Saxo Grammaticus, who's writing in the 12th century, and he's writing the history of the Danish kings, and he's the one who actually records the story of Amleth, who becomes Shakespeare's Hamlet. So you have chroniclers like that in the 12th century. You have Snorri Sturluson in the late 12th century, early 13th century Iceland, who's also writing chronicles, and he records the deeds of people like Sigurd and Brunhild that's based on the poetic tradition. But a lot of them were writing as Christians looking at non-Christians, so they were going to be a little tisk-tisk anyway, because they, they have to kind of qualify the fact that 
Well, they might be our ancestors. They weren't Christians, so yeah, they might be a bit more violent than we like, because sure, we're Christians. But remember that Iceland was converted at the point of a sword when the Norwegian king sends a troop over and says, if you don't convert to Christianity, we will kill you. And that's in the year 1000, and the Icelanders say, whoa, 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 we have another way of doing this. It's called the Althing. We're going to appoint somebody to think about it for a day and a half, and then we'll decide. So you have kind of this this whole idea of the chronicler supposedly recording history, but all you have to do is look at Geoffrey of Monmouth and the history of the kings of Britain, also 12th century, because he's got the story of King Arthur, right. which is probably mostly definitely invented right uh with that statement with the uh norwegian king in iceland that was how my wife proposed to me i just want to let you know uh jay oh, I see. So she, held, <laughs> she held you the sword I see. of course <laughs> okay jay um Kat, i think we also have a tendency to to think that that the viking age the, that the same sort of thing was going on throughout that 400 year stretch and really you have two pretty distinct periods, don't you? One where you really are just sort of grabbing whatever isn't nailed down and sailing back off uh, wherever you're going. And then uh, the back half, we're starting to colonize. We're starting to conquer with the intent of creating our own kingdoms. We see that with the Danelaw in England. Um, we see that with um, Norman, uh, Normandy in, in France. So did that change in the way the, the, the Norse operated, not so much as raiders, but as ultimately governments and bureaucrats, did that also change the literary narrative um, in any way? Um, those things are actually kind of going on in tandem, because you always have colonizing and settling among the Scandinavian people as they spread out. And they are also doing raids at the same time because, you know, the settlement of Iceland dates from the ninth century and that's the settlement of Iceland, but they're also running summer raids because it's an island. They have to get stuff. And the cities in Ireland that are founded by the Scandinavians who also raided. So a lot of that stuff is actually happening at the same time. It's not really distinct periods. You do have a more bureaucratic setup, the more established those settlements get. And what actually happens is the literature that's written down is written mostly in the latter part, because now you have literate Christians writing it down. Okay. Rick? Yeah. Uh, Kent, I would like to uh, go back to the blood and gore. Uh, has there been any archaeological evidence finding burials where you could see that uh, somebody was subjected to the blood eagle? Or is a blood no. eagle just a marketing device to sell uh, medieval tracts to people who would like to be titillated? <laughs> I actually had this conversation with my students today. Now, the blood eagle, as it has been debated, and there's actually a recent speculum article where a medieval historian and um, medical historians and medical practitioners who are very well-versed in anatomy have, have shown that, yes, this physically could have been done, and it would require hacking through somebody's back down the length of their spine pulling out their ribs through their back and then pulling their lungs out and laying their lungs on their shoulders. 
The problem is that if you did that, the person would die fairly fast. So this whole idea that it was punishment and execution, sure, if you want somebody dead right now. But that kind of bone trauma, if there was a body that was ever buried like that, it would show up, and it has not. There is no physical evidence in any archaeological burials that the blood eagle was ever carried out on anybody who was buried. Now, and I say that specifically because there are only nine references to a blood eagle at all in any text. Seven are prose, two are poetic, and four of them are about the punishment of the same guy. And the other ones are all related to each other. So it's far more likely that it's a literary motif that evolves as the nastiest way to kill the nastiest person who did the nastiest thing, usually killing Perfect. somebody's father or kin. And, and the first references to it, the very first references to the blood eagle don't even describe the procedure that way. There's a whole debate, and Roberta Frank very correctly said it's probably just in the scaldic verse talking about carving an eagle on somebody's back or carving them like an eagle on their back. And the later versions include the gruesome details. So it's kind of like a literary version of telephone where you have one image and each successive author goes, Ooh, how can I make this worse? Wow. Jay, you got a question? Yeah. Um, Kat, I'm, I'm interested if we take this literature into the modern world, um, one of the things that is that has shown up a lot in um, at least scholarly articles and things uh, is the use of uh, Norse imagery and Norse literature as uh, means or methods to promote white supremacism. Um, oh, and it's sort of Lord. been co-opted, and I know a lot of... of uh, medieval historians particularly who are whose area of emphasis is Scandinavia who who seem to be spending an inordinate amount of time trying to sort of fight that 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 uh trend going on um as you look at where how the the imagery is being used do you see that also as a problem and and how do we resist that that sort of stealing of imagery for for a uh, for an ideology that that had really nothing to do with Scandinavia at any point probably right it, it is a problem it is a massive problem and it's not just a problem with the way that white supremacists and Nazi groups have appropriated the imagery of Norse runes or Norse gods there are practicing Odinists who who still follow the traditional religion as they interpret it, who are not white supremacists. Absolutely not. But there are people who are white supremacists who have decided that their interpretation of medieval culture justifies their white supremacy. And this doesn't just happen with the Norse material. It happens with the Irish material and the Celtic material. The Celtic cross has become a replacement for swastikas in certain white supremacist groups because they know that if people see a swastika, they will go Nazi. So they hide it as a Celtic cross 
in specific forms. My colleague Maggie Williams has written extensively on that. There are other medieval tropes that have been appropriated by white supremacists who are essentially trying to justify their racism, their bigotry, their misogyny by saying, look, the Middle Ages was white, it was pure, it was patriarchal. The thing about that is that's not true. But that doesn't mean that there weren't aspects of hatred and racism in the Middle Ages. There certainly were. There is a whole history of anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages that was violently enacted against Jewish communities throughout the Middle Ages and carries on to today. So the important thing to do is to recognize what parts of medieval history actually did engage in bigotry and hatred, but also understand the way that our own field has perpetuated it by insisting since the 19th century, that white Europe is the focus of the Middle Ages and insisting that white Europeans were the only important groups worth studying. And there is a whole range of scholars right now doing very important work on race in the Middle Ages. And race is a 19th century construct anyway. But looking at racism in the modern age and how it appropriates the Middle Ages The best way to combat it is to really recognize the truth and reality of diversity in the Middle Ages, the diversity of medieval people, or even what we mean by the Middle Ages. Everybody assumes we mean Europe. Well, there were civilizations flourishing in Africa, in Asia, in China, in in parts of Southeast Asia at the exact same time as the, quote, Western Middle Ages. Understanding the diversity of peoples, the interaction between peoples and what racism and bigotry actually existed in the Middle Ages and what's real and what isn't is probably the best way to counter those narratives. Also, when you look at somebody standing in the Capitol building with bison horns claiming he's a Norse shaman, understand that he's lying. And he is not. And it is probably better to simply refer to him as bison boy than anything else. I would like to (laughs) clarify that. He is not lying. He is lying and going to jail. So uh, to make sure that we'll get that there. Uh, We will be back um, and wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1. FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 444th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our guest, Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy, 
professor of medieval literature at Longwood University, who talked with us about were the Vikings brutal and bloodthirsty, or there's just a little misunderstanding. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Jay Sorts. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.